Hi there. Happy New Year. I just got back from some time off, and I hope you also found some time over the holidays to rest, recharge, reconnect. As we look ahead to this year and all of the crazy news with midterm elections and the seemingly endless variants of the virus, I hope that you are finding some comfort in getting some useful information from our journalism on Post Reports. If there is someone in your life who you think would love our show, please share it with them. Or help other people find us by rating or reviewing us on Apple, on Spotify, or wherever you listen. Okay, thank you so much, and here is the show. At 10.41 a.m. on Saturday, a man knocked on the door of Congregation Beth Israel in Colleyville, Texas. He was allowed in. He watched the service, and then it became apparent that he was not there for any religious purposes, but rather to stage a terrorist event. That's senior editor Mark Fisher. Over the weekend, a man held four people hostage at gunpoint for 11 hours at a synagogue in Texas. The event has raised concerns about the rise of anti-Semitism in the U.S. and the safety of places of worship. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, January 18th. Today, what we know about the hostage crisis that took place over the weekend. Plus, why Australians sent tennis player Novak Djokovic home. On Saturday, in the aftermath of the hostage situation, FBI agent Matt DeSarno spoke to reporters in Texas. Today's result, which was four safe hostages and the situation resolved, was really uh, really a result of of a a long, long day of hard work by nearly 200 law enforcement officers. There are so many questions about what happened, including how the congregants even escaped. But Mark says that other details about the hostage taker are beginning to emerge. Faisal Akram is a uh, resident of Great Britain, grew up there, and was, according to his family, someone who had suffered from considerable mental health challenges over the years, was also someone who was deeply emotionally involved in the case of a convicted terrorist who is imprisoned in Fort Worth, serving an 86-year federal prison term for her role in trying to kill U.S. soldiers and FBI agents uh, in Afghanistan, where she was captured. Akram has sort of taken up her cause and wanted her released. And that seemed to be his fixation, his obsession. Throughout the 11 hours, he pushed for her release, which he thought members of the synagogue somehow would have the power to affect. So tell me more about what transpired during those 11 hours, what it was like for the people who were hostages in that synagogue. You know, it sounds from the few accounts that we've heard so far, it sounds like it was uh, a relatively calm 11 hours. There were certainly periods where uh, the intruder was aggressive, angry. He was ranting. I am going to die. Okay, so don't cry over me. Okay, don't cry over me. 
This was evidently a man who was off. He ranted, he raved. Uh, a lot of what he said didn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, when he did make sense, it was primarily a, a series of grievances uh, calling for the release of this prisoner. And he had all kinds of conspiracy notions about Jews, about their control of the world. He seemed to believe that there was a chief rabbi somewhere in the United States who could get the prisoner released and who had all kinds of political power. He believed that the Jews had brought about uh, the capture of Siddiqui, the, the woman in prison. So he had these sort of stereotypical views, conspiratorial notions about Jewish power. And yet at times he was uh, kind and humane in his conversations with the rabbi and others, uh, with the negotiators from the FBI. He would talk about the fact that the people he was holding hostage seemed to him to be kind and good people. They, they, they sort of got along uh, at various points. And then at other points, he became frustrated and angry and impatient. And it was really the mounting of that, that anger that led the rabbi and the other hostages to plan and then affect their escape. What did they do? How did they escape? You know, it's interesting. At this early stage in the investigation, we have three very different versions of what happened. We have the brother of the intruder who had been on the phone with him at various points during the day saying that Faisal Akram released the hostages. We have the FBI saying that they were able to get the hostages out, in other words, to somehow play a role in affecting their release. And then we have the hostages themselves, the rabbi and one of the others, saying, no, none of these other people had anything to do with this. What happened? happened was, after all of these hours of conversation and, and anger, the rabbi saw an opening uh, where the intruder was uh, momentarily not paying attention to them. The rabbi and the others had inched their way toward an exit and were about 20 feet from the exit when the rabbi decided, here's my moment. He took a chair, he threw it at the intruder, oh and in the confusion, he bolted out the door, having already told the other hostages to follow him, and they made it outside. Uh, one of the hostages had been released a couple of hours earlier, apparently on humanitarian grounds. Uh, apparently he was suffering from a medical condition, and so the uh, intruder had allowed him out. But the other three left in the evening while the forces from the FBI, police, and state troopers had amassed outside and uh, were ready to go after the intruder upon the exit of the hostages. And what happened to Akram? So as soon as the rabbi and the other hostages got out, law enforcement entered the building. Uh, we heard a big flash bang. Uh, we heard gunfire, uh, then silence, then a little more gunfire. Uh, and then we were told that the intruder was dead. We do not know to this date whether he killed himself or was killed by the gunfire from law enforcement. The intruder had said all throughout the day that he would not leave that building alive, that he was going to die. It sounded at various points during the live stream like he wanted to die, that that was one of his goals. Uh, he wanted to get Siddiqui released. He wanted her brought there. But at all times, he said that he and probably she would die at the end of the day and that they would ascend to heaven. What has been the reaction to this attack, especially because we have seen so many attacks on religious institutions and specifically synagogues over the last few years? 
You know, each of these events, whether it was the Tree of Life massacre in Pittsburgh in 2018 or this hostage-taking, whenever there are these deeply traumatic uh, anti-Semitic attacks, there's a another swelling of concern among Jews in this country and around the world, and particularly among those who are given the job of securing houses of worship. The tragedy here, of course, is that a house of worship should be a place that people go to without a thought that is just simply assumed to be a safe and welcoming place. But of course, in much of the world, synagogues are places that are very much targets. And so in Europe, there has been high, heavy security around Jewish institutions and synagogues for decades. In Germany, in France, you have to go through a gauntlet of security to get into a synagogue. You need to have your ID checked, you need to be searched, and so on. That has not been the case in this country until now. But since the Tree of Life episode, we've started to see a bulking up of security measures at synagogues. That will obviously continue and expand now. And that is uh, something that it's, I think all faiths uh, see as, as tragic. It, it really hits at the heart of what a house of worship is supposed to be. It also struck me reporting that this synagogue had had training for active shooter situations. How did that play a role in how this whole episode went down? You know, I think a lot of people, uh, whether it's at synagogues or other institutions that have imposed security, a lot of people uh, think of these measures as a kind of security theater, uh, that it's just uh, all these uh, trappings are meant primarily to make people feel okay about entering a building, uh, but don't have any real impact. Well, to the contrary, the rabbi, Charlie Citron Walker, and the other hostages said that the training they received about how to deal deal with an intruder was invaluable in how they managed the day and how they effectuated their escape. Just this past August, security officials had come to Congregation Beth Israel in Colleyville, Texas, and given an all-day training about how to deal with someone who comes into your synagogue uh, and means you no good. You know, most of those security trainings are focused on a mass shooter kind of scenario. So they didn't have specific training for hostage taking, but they did have training about how to deal with an intruder. And they said that was absolutely crucial to how they managed him, how they kept him talking, how they tried to keep him calm, how they tried to get him talking about himself and his uh, demands, his desires, and how they were able to buy time and work without any conversation with the FBI negotiators, but nonetheless work with them and help them even as they were frightened for their lives. And so in the midst of this terrifying, harrowing experience, uh, the rabbi and the other hostages were able to think back to that training and figure what can we do? What are the psychological tools we can use uh, to keep the hostage taker calm and to try to work toward a solution? And then how can we actually escape? And so the whole edging toward the exit, the whole uh, keeping things calm and quiet, and then the decision to throw the chair and run, that's all out of the training. And so they really believe that they would not be alive but for the training they'd received. What are your takeaways from reporting on this uh, attack? And what are the questions that you have going forward? 
Well, there are a lot of unanswered questions, and obviously the investigation is really at an early phase. We don't know how or why Faisal Akram was able to come into the United States. He came in a couple of weeks before this incident from Britain. We're learning just uh, in recent hours that he was on the radar of the British intelligence officials. They had decided that he was not necessarily an imminent threat, but they knew about him. We need to know more about that. We need to know... uh, how he got the weapon, and if if he did indeed have explosives, how he got those as well. So that's all unanswered. President Biden said in passing the other day. Well, allegedly, I don't have all the facts, nor the attorney general, but allegedly the assertion was he got the weapons on the street. He purchased them when he landed. So all of that timeline needs to be worked out to look at what the holes were in the security system that allowed this guy into the country. On a larger scale, this is one more sign of a growing anti-Semitic impulse uh, that we're seeing not just uh, a single terrorist, but from various extremes in, on the political spectrum. Uh, and we're seeing every time you have one of these incidents, that leads to various kind of copycat incidents. And so that's the big worry at this point. Certainly after the Tree of Life incident, we saw a blip in terms of the open expression of anti-Semitic uh, sentiments and online and other forums. So it's a troubled time for people across the world. And whenever uh, the world is in the great stress that we've all been in through over the last couple of years, we see acts like this take on a kind of a larger import because of the possibility that uh, they can spread in some sort of viral fashion. Mark Fisher is an editor and reporter at The Washington Post. The story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. After the break, the dramatic deportation of Novak Djokovic. We'll be right back. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com. And now, one more thing. The first major of the 2022 tennis season, the Australian Open, has gotten underway. And it's missing the world's number one men's player, Novak Djokovic, who was deported after his visa was canceled twice. And he is now in his native Serbia taking some time to recuperate from what was an 11-day ordeal about whether he would be eligible to stay in Australia and defend his title. Liz Clark is a sports writer for The Post. She's been following the plight of Novak Djokovic in Australia since the beginning. In November, the Australian Open informed all players that if they wanted to compete in the tournament in 2022, they would have to be fully vaccinated. Australia has taken extraordinary lengths for two years to keep the virus at a minimum, and citizens have complied. I think uh, roughly 90% of Australians are fully vaxxed. So many of the tennis players who were not thrilled about getting vaccinated went ahead and did so because it was quite clear 
If they wanted to compete in the Australian Open, they needed to be vaccinated. Novak Djokovic chose not to get vaccinated. Djokovic initially got a medical exemption for the tournament and headed to Melbourne, but he got stopped at the airport by Australian Border Force officers. They said that the exemption he had was valid to play in the tournament, but not to enter the country. They detained him and canceled his visa. What followed, to summarize, was a back and forth like a ball in a tennis match. A federal judge ruled that border force officers had mistreated Djokovic, so he was released. But then the government threatened to cancel his visa again. The immigration minister called Djokovic a threat to all the hard work that Australia has been doing to prevent the spread of COVID. He's such a powerful, important figure and role model to many. He believed there was a chance he would incite and inflame anti-vax sentiments in the country, which is a big deal in Australia, given the sacrifices everyone has made. Like regular rolling lockdowns and strict border policies that kept Australians separated from their loved ones who live abroad. In the end, Djokovic is not playing. He's back in Serbia. And he hasn't said why he hasn't gotten vaccinated. It's important to note that he's actually had COVID twice, most recently in December. That was part of his appeal to not have to be vaccinated. So Liz can only guess at his reasoning. What to me is clear as someone who's covered him for years, as well as covered elite athletes, Novak Djokovic is quite extreme Uh, if not obsessive, as many athletes are, about every single thing that goes into his body, what he eats, super strict gluten-free diet, what he drinks, how he maintains his fitness, uh, the practices he does to maintain his flexibility. All these things are key to his game. It has served him super well. He's tied for the most Grand Slams in men's history. From his point of view, and really anyone's point of view, whatever it is Novak's doing is working for him. He is the best at the moment in the game. But what's best for his game is not necessarily what Australians think is best for their country. Once Novak Djokovic posted on social media a photo of him with his luggage, gleefully saying, I've gotten the medical exemption, I'm going to Australia. When he landed, you know, not even 24 hours later, the country was in an uproar. The By far, most Australians were outraged, having sacrificed so much. You know, if they had traveled overseas, they weren't allowed to return to the country. People had lost loved ones. There was uh, really a tidal wave of anger, shock, and resentment, really, from Australians toward the tournament officials who granted him the exemption, along with health authorities in the state of Victoria. They were not understanding why this millionaire athlete had a different rule. Subsequently, a poll done by The Age, The Australian Age, which is a major daily um, in the country, found that 71% of Australians thought he should be sent home. Still, the decision made by Australia's immigration minister is controversial. You know, there are some who take issue with the rationale given for that, which was his presence could ignite others to have anti-vax sentiment. You know, not everybody is comfortable with that because that's essentially saying you can't come into our country because of the danger your ideas pose. 
This issue isn't going away anytime soon. Other major tennis tournaments will need to grapple with their country's vaccine requirements as well. The import here is get on the same page, make the standard clear, either make clear that there are no medical exemptions that are going to be granted, or if there are, be super specific and unwavering about what they are. And then Novak Djokovic, as well as the two or three other players among the top 100 in the world in men's tennis who have chosen not to get vaccinated, they can make their choice as professionals. It's worth it to me to get vaccinated or it's not worth it to me. But no one comes out looking good from this. So, you know, Australia sticking to its guns. Uh, I'm not going to stand and applaud because the real lesson here is this, this could hardly have been handled worse. The French Open is this spring, and already the French sports ministry has said to players, no vaccine, no French Open. Liz Clark is a sports reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Renny Svernovsky. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Alexis Diao and Ariel Plotnik. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.